Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we consider the United Nations on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of its founding in 1945. We're fortunate to have with us today Professor Carrie Walling, an associate professor of political science at Albion College in Michigan, where she directs the Prentice M. Brown Honors Program. Professor Walling is author of All Necessary Measures, the United Nations and Humanitarian Intervention, published by University of Pennsylvania Press, and she recently contributed an article on the Security Council's complicated relationship with human rights enforcement, uh, titled The United Nations Security Council and Human Rights, uh, and that appeared in a special issue of the journal Global Governance on the occasion of the 75th anniversary of the UN. Her current book project, Human Rights and Dignity for All, explores how advocates use international human rights to promote social and political change in the United States and around the world. Professor Walling is a member of the Academic Council for the Study of the UN System and a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project. Thanks so much for joining us today, Carrie Walling. Thank you. It's really great to be here, and I can't think of a a better way to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the UN than to be a part of this conversation today. Well, thank you so much. We're very glad to have you with us. So uh, let's start with a little bit of history, I guess. Uh, Given the fate of its predecessor uh, effort at global governance, the, the League of Nations, It's a little bit hard to believe that the United Nations has now been in existence for three quarters of a century. Why do you think it's lasted this long? And what has changed in the world to make that happen? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think a great place to start. And while there's a lot of ways to answer this, I I think of three interconnected reasons. And I'd say the first is that the United Nations has proven useful. So with its near universal membership, it's become an effective forum for states to peacefully be able to air their grievances and also to organize to address common problems. I also think um, its usefulness is shown through the life-saving work of its family of specialized agencies, 
organizations like UNICEF, the World Food Program, UNHCR, the World Health Organization. I think these UN agencies are really helping people meet their basic needs around education, healthcare, food. Uh, and so it's working uh, for a number of people. I think the, the second piece has to do with its enforcement power. So the UN does have some meaningful enforcement power and authority through the UN Security Council. I'd say the Security Council is the preeminent institution of international politics because it has this ability to regulate the use of force in international affairs and because its decisions are intended to be binding on UN members. Um, when the members of the Security Council have political will and agree on the need to comply with charter principles, they can take effective action to maintain international security. And then I guess the, the, third, the third reason for me what really stands out is the normative impact of the organization. Um, it, when I think about issues of sustainable development, justice and accountability, human rights, um, these all speak to the aspirations of the world's peoples, and they have fundamentally changed people's expectations of state behavior and redefined the very meaning of state sovereignty, even at the United Nations, so that it's become less about states' rights and a little bit more balanced towards state responsibilities to its people. So what I think this has meant in practice is that a, a place like the UN, to go back to the UN Security Council, yes, we regularly see power on display by permanent members there, but global norms have also fundamentally altered their institutional practice. And I think that the greatest power that the Security Council really has is this ability to define the parameters of its own competence. So the UN Charter actually gives the Security Council that authority to define the meaning of security threat. And over time, we've seen that shift from this fundamental exclusive focus on state security to a more human security approach. So I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that the UN has shown an ability to evolve. It's struck a balance between maintaining fidelity to founding principles but it's also shown at least a sufficient ability to adapt to changing circumstances, particularly over the last 30 years. Interesting. So it has many achievements to, to claim for itself. Um, but notwithstanding its relative longevity and those achievements, the UN has come in for a lot of criticism of late, it seems. So around issues such as its budget, the representation, uh, the different countries that are represented in the Security Council, the behavior of some of its peacekeeping forces, and the rectitude or otherwise of the Human Rights Council. How would you respond to those criticisms or others that you uh, think are, you know, serious? Yeah, I think those are absolutely legitimate and well-founded criticisms. I think that the UN often falls short of our expectations. 
when it does, the consequences can be devastating. I guess I think what, what hurts the UN the most is when the gap between its rhetoric and its practice is exposed. And, and I think just thinking of today and tomorrow, the, the opening of the UN General Assembly, the UN has really been putting gender equality at the forefront of its work. But at last check, I think there's only about a dozen female speakers out of about 200 in the, the general debate. Um, I also think, I mean, you mentioned the UN Security Council. Um, we lose faith in the UN Security Council when permanent members violate charter principles with impunity, whether it's Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, China's repression and impossible genocide against Uyghur Muslims, or blatant U.S. hypocrisy on human rights, as has been recently demonstrated by unlawful police killings of Black Americans and brutal repression of peaceful protests. Um, the other the other thing that I think is hurts, um, the UN harms its mission and its brand when it promotes accountability for its member states, but falls short of taking real institutional responsibility for its own failures to protect populations that it's meant to serve, especially through peace operations. Um, so, I, so I think you're right. While there is much to celebrate, there's, there's also a fair amount to criticize. And I think if we're going to be talking 25 years from now, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the UN, it's going to be because the UN gets serious about reform reforming the Security Council so that it no longer disproportionately represents Europe over Africa and Asia, tackling institutionalized forms of discrimination, and also shifting this balance to make UN more accountable to people than it is to states. Um, I think the last point that I'd make on this, though, is while I agree there's much to criticize. I also think that it's very much the case that the UN often provides a convenient punching bag um, for states. The UN only has as much political will, legitimacy, and capacity as its members truly want to give it. And many of the failures of the UN are actually failures of member states, failures of their solidarity and political will. And sometimes members inflict their own damage by making the UN the scapegoat. Um, and, I, and I think that's been really clear. We can all express some disappointment in the World Health Organization, but at the same time, if you don't fund or share crucial information with the organization, it's going to be ill-equipped to deal with a problem like our current global pandemic. Right. It's a little bit like uh, the... Churchill line about uh, democracy that, you know, it's better than all the other, uh, you know, systems uh, that, uh, you know, it's the worst, except uh, it's better than all the other ones that are available. And basically the United Nations has provided certain opportunities for states to work out problems uh, that wouldn't have existed in its absence. But as you say, you know, it can also be a punching bag when it, when it seems to misbehave or when it seems not to be solving problems that it's meant to solve. Um, so your comments lead me to a couple of questions, I guess. Uh, one is uh, about the way in which the United States is treated in the, in the UN. 
and maybe the way in which it is perceived. And I mean, it has recently uh, reacted rather negatively to the possibility of prosecution of its uh, you know, representatives a- a- abroad and military people by the, uh, I think it was the International Criminal Court. Um, and there's been this tendency, you know, to suggest that, you know, we're not really subject to these kinds of, uh, uh, criticisms or constraints. I mean, you mentioned the killing of black men by the police in the United States, which obviously has set off a lot of, um, a lot of unrest in, in our cities and throughout the country really over the last few months. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then I'll get into the other question that I had in mind, but you know, how's the United States, which obviously in many ways was responsible for creating this post-World War II, uh, security and humanitarian architecture, um, but of late, it seems not particularly enthusiastic about that that architecture. Yeah, I think this is this has been consistent U.S. behavior, but it, it's certainly been more pronounced under the, the Trump administration. I mean, the United States seems to have always had this uh, mixed mixed feelings about multilateral action, um, as you stated. The United States has been at the forefront of creating institutions like the United Nations and in promoting uh, many of its core values uh, and particularly um, complicated relationship around human rights, both both promoting human rights, but yet showing an unwillingness to be held to those same standards um, domestically. And and part of this, I think, has to do with um, its domestic uh, political culture in the United States, as well as is the division of powers in our in our government, um, I think one of the the real challenges for the United Nations, though, is that the United States, um, as it steps back and, and continues to withdraw from the organization, um, that there has become a, a political vacuum there, and we have seen that there are. Other states like China in particular, it's more than willing to step in and and fill that gap. Um, So while the United States is is withdrawing, I I think there's also a lot of um, frustration being expressed with the United States for failing to live up to that vision uh, of leadership that, that many other countries in the world want and expect from the United States. And it's particularly jarring when the U.S. falls short. Um, I do have to say, I was really struck this summer um, by the fact that the emergency meeting of the Human Rights Council was held in the the wake of the the George Floyd murder. And even though it was not directed exclusively or specifically at the United States, um, it was very clear um, that the United States' own domestic human rights practices were very much on the minds of the international community and that those were not dissimilar from the kinds of xenophobia and racism that we see happening um, within countries and between countries around the world. Um, so, So while one could look at that event and say, well, the United States walked away um, with only being somewhat shamed, but not effective punishment, I would say the fact that the United States really got called to the carpet um, in the international community 
in and of itself was a very powerful um, statement about the power of the United Nations to um, have an impact and shift the conversation, even against powerful states, even if the the form of um, form of, of that kind of punishment looks very different against some of the most powerful states like our permanent five members than it does for, for those with, with less economic and military power, that nonetheless, when the international community comes together, they can speak with a relatively united voice. Right. It seems as though this is all part of a larger process and it didn't only start with the Trump administration but uh, a process of sort of withdrawal from international affairs uh, by the United States and you know correspondingly a kind of erosion of the international architecture that was put into place after World War II of which the UN is in many ways of course the centerpiece um, so uh, this kind of leads to my other question uh, and that is about, you know, the renewed nationalism and skepticism about globalization and global governance that seems to be abroad, not just in the United States, but uh, somewhat more widely. And, um, you know, I guess the question is to what extent, I mean, this is obviously in some ways what killed the League of Nations. Uh, the UN has been around a lot longer, but it seems to be facing some serious headwinds. And I guess I wonder, you know, what you think are the prospects that the UN will be around 25 years from now uh, to, you know, serve as the coordinator of global peace, security, and human rights. Yeah, well, I like to be cautiously optimistic. So I, I'm trying to remain hopeful, but I, I do have to admit this is a very troubling moment um, for if you care about uh, multilateral cooperation um, in global governance, I really think that it's unclear. And I think that the decisions that we make today and how we decide to respond to this particular moment is going to decide the future of the United Nations and, and the future of multilateral action. And I really honestly believe at this 75th year, we are at a crossroads and we, meaning the, the, the members, all the members of the United Nations, have to decide whether we want to nurture and, and maintain this institution, whether we want to fundamentally transform it, or if we're going to simply walk away and, and abandon it or, or just allow it to kind of wither through neglect. And I, my hope is that, um, that this moment of crisis will emphasize the necessity of an institution like the United Nations. Um, sometimes when we can think about this even domestically, when government is working, we don't always notice, um, but we notice when it, when it starts to, to fail. And I think that if the, the UN is going to stick around, it does have to become a more inclusive place where the benefits of cooperation are more widely shared among the world's peoples. Um, this is a, a period of time where people are, are hurting and they're fearful and um, historically that, that hasn't boded well um, for, for cooperation. Um, but I'm hoping that uh, maybe this week we'll, we'll see some reinvigorated you know, commitment towards the organization. 
But I really feel it hangs in the balance. I, I, I feel like it's really hard to predict at this moment which way it's going to go. Interesting. Um, and I mean, this leads directly into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is about the coronavirus pandemic and the UN's response. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has seriously undermined the well-being of populations around the globe. We're on the brink, it seems, of passing the million mark in terms of the number of deaths from the from the illness. Uh, and obviously, this affects the possibilities for achieving many of the sustainable development goals that you mentioned earlier on in your remarks, uh, such as the reduction of extreme poverty in the world. So how well do you think the UN is responding to the challenges generated by the pandemic, which would seem to be crucial to these questions of how it's going to you know, move beyond this crossroads that you've described? Yeah, I think, un unfortunately, there's been a lot of mixed messaging. Um, and, and what I mean is, while I think that the the Secretariat and the UN agencies ha have been very um, strong in terms of, of both their, their messaging, their, their appeal for global cooperation, and certainly some of the actual work uh, and assistance that's happening on the ground in some of the most devastated places that, you know, the, I, I was truly devastated as somebody who, who's a student of, of the Security Council, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised because I'm a student of the Security Council, um, but, but truly the, the failure of membership to speak with a, a unified voice. I mean, it took more than three months for the Security Council to be able to pass a resolution that simply, um, lent their support to the secretary general's call for a global ceasefire uh, in the midst of the, the pandemic. So that was pretty distressing. Um, in term of the, terms of the SGDs, it, it is devastating because um, we all were already behind on meeting those goals. And the coronavirus has certainly laid bare and exacerbated existing inequities, both within societies and between societies. Um, we're seeing that those who are least able to cope are gonna suffer the most. And we really risk rolling back existing gains in, in other areas, um, particularly uh, education and gender equality. Uh, I think all of this though has gone to show the necessity of an institution like the United Nations. I mean, certainly the, the pandemic is a truly transnational problem. Uh, COVID-19 doesn't respect sovereignty. It doesn't respect borders. And it's one of those problems that only truly by working together can government solve it. So I think it does underscore the value and importance of the UN. But, the, you know, this is the but, right? The, a politically divided and underfunded UN whose most Powerful members are choosing to turn inward and abandon global cooperation and leadership and make it difficult for the UN to meet the challenge of this moment. And, and certainly this is a challenge that the, the Secretary General has uh, labeled the most important, right? Of it, mm -hmm. of it. It's, it's like this, it's our World War III. Um, it, it just came in a different form, mm -hmm. um, what we were expecting. But I, I guess I'm hopeful that the UN can meet the moment. It, it is filled with principles and dedicated professionals. And um, there has been a, a great deal of um, 
solidarity among many of the member states of the UN. And so I, I hope that, um, that they'll win the day and that innovation can come out of challenge and cooperation will start to replace competition and isolation, particularly as we see the, the pandemic continue. Um, this goes to your, your Churchill quote earlier, but at this point, I, I think the UN is the best shot that we've got at the moment. And, and so we, the world's people, need it to be successful. Right. So, um, I mean, another uh, challenge I think that's arisen in recent years, um, you know, and this goes back far before the pandemic, but uh, is increasingly salient, I think, on the world scene, is the changing geopolitical uh, picture. And in particular, the rise of China and its efforts to spread influence and even to kind of secure territory in a certain sense, at least to have, you know, create infrastructure in parts of the world like Africa, Latin America, even in Europe, um, that it, I think historically has never really tried to do before. And so there's a great debate going on among foreign policy specialists and diplomats and uh, state leaders about you know how the West, if you like, and China are going to relate to each other, uh, and uh, I just I guess I wonder whether the UN can play a role in addressing those tensions and trying to sort out some kind of new relationship between uh, China and you know it's especially the U.S., but increasingly as Europe kind of goes its own way, as the United States disengages from it. Europe has to decide how it's going to, you know, behave relative to uh, to China, and it hasn't always, you know, sort of decided that question in the same way that the United States has. So I guess I wonder whether you see the UN playing a role in, um, you know, sort of dealing with this new geopolitical scene. Yeah, I think this is this is one place where you might get a more more another optimistic answer from me. I, I guess I would say absolutely the UN can do that, and and the reason I say that is that if we think back, I mean, one of the defining purposes of the UN was about avoiding great power conflict and diffusing tensions among those most powerful states by giving them this non-military way to confront one another. Um, I mean, arguably, one of the, the criticisms of, of the UN Security Council is that sometimes it, it caters too much to great power politics, which essentially, when you have division among those permanent members, it, it gets in the way of them taking effective action um, to, to, to stop conflict and crisis. Um, but that, that very thing that we criticize is in part how and why the, the UN Security Council was designed the way it was in the first place. Um, and so in a sense, I think the Security Council was designed pretty well um, to, to diffuse uh, tensions between uh, those most powerful members. Um, now, um, so I, I think we, we owe the UN significant credit for, for decreasing the risk of world war, for example. Um, but at the same time, we, we know it's been most productive and effective when tensions among permanent members are low. And, and that's why I think there's so much um, 
criticism and, and certainly disappointment in the UN Security Council, particularly in recent years, is because uh, we are seeing essentially the council being held hostage to these permanent member divisions, um, which is getting in the way uh, of doing the, the job we need them to do on, on international peace and security. Um, so, so it's kind of double-edged because at the same time, as long as they have that ability um, to work through those issues peacefully in this forum, uh, it does, I think, prevent uh, a, a hotter conflict emerging between them. Um, but I do think there, there's a risk that we could see a, a return back to a, a more an era more resembling a Cold War type politics, right? Which would mean significant reversals in, in what the UN is actually able um, to do. Mm-hmm. So, so I do think it's a it's a troubling moment. Um, and like you said, I mean, there there's just so much uncertainty right now. Will the United States continue to to disengage, and will China? continue to seek to, to fill that vacuum. I think one thing I think is sometimes getting missed in this focus on the geopolitical kind of level is how much China is actually doing with inside the organization of the United Nations, how much it's trying to solidify its own kind of institutional power, agenda setting power, if you will, um, by, by, you know, capturing leadership positions within the organization. Um, I think to when when China, if China's not winning in stripping um, references to human rights or redefining what it means, um, it's it's cutting budgets, right? And it's making sure that mm. human rights components of peace operations are the ones being underfunded. Um, and, and so I think that. By looking at the big confrontation stuff, we we might also miss what's going on within the organization um, that that China's looking to increase its influence internal um, and use that to its advantage. Um, so it's not just this this outward competition that we have to pay attention to. Right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, this has really been a terrific overview, I think, of uh, the crossroads at which, as you say, the UN seems to find itself and uh, some of the things that we can expect and, and look forward to or perhaps at least anticipate uh, in the future. And uh, I think it's very helpful for anybody who wants to understand where the UN is at, so to speak, on the occasion of uh, the anniversary, the 75th anniversary of its founding. So that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professor Carrie Walling of Albion College in Michigan for taking the time to discuss the history and future prospects of the UN uh, on this occasion. And I want to thank uh, also Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to seeing you to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.